Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. One of the breakout stars of this momentous campaign season was my CNN colleague, Abby Phillip, whose thoughtful, probing reporting on the election really stood out and marked her as one of America's fine young political journalists. I sat down with Abby this week to talk about her own life and journey to this point, her meteoric rise in journalism, and her thoughts on the campaign we just covered and what it means for the country. Here is that conversation. Abby Phillip, so good to see you. You know because we've communicated uh, during this year how much I've appreciated your coverage, and so have a lot of other people. Um, You've been a bit of a phenom in this uh, election season. How how does it feel to be a phenom? Uh, (laughs) That's a funny question. I mean, um, it feels a little bit the same. It just feels like a lot of people are paying attention, which is great. But I I think day to day, it's like what I've been doing for several years now. And I don't think anything I've done has changed, but I think people's awareness of it has. And it feels it feels great. I'm kind of honored and a little flabbergasted by it. I know my mother is having really the time of her life and all of this is, <laughs> is really great for her. So it's a weird deal, though, you know, because um you are you are a very good reporter and you have the disposition of a reporter and reporters are um like trained to sort of stand in the back of the room and report on what they see which is what you you do so well and then all of a sudden you're sort of you're on the you're in the New York Times you're you know, people are are noticing it. it you, there have to be moments when you s- sort of shake your head and say, how the hell did this happen? Yeah, I mean, there have been a lot of moments like that over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, I, I, um, I go between wanting to kind of sink into the background. I've, I've told a lot of people recently, and people who actually know me well know this, I'm very much an introvert. I don't like a lot of attention. I don't like kind of being at the front and center of things. I mean, even the fact that my career, I'm on TV almost every day, it's very compartmentalized for me. I mean, this is my job. I'm supposed to just communicate to people uh, verbally. And part of that just happens to have a visual element, but it's not something that's front of mind for me personally. So it's been a little uncomfortable, I'll be honest. And But I have been just trying to kind of be okay with that, to not be, not lean into my 
instinct to be overly modest because I think that sometimes in life, when moments like this happen, you just have to lean into it and ex- accept it and welcome it and use it for um, a, some kind of good, whether it is being able to do more of the things that I want to do or um, being able to shine a light on things that I want to uh, shine a light on as a reporter. So I think kind of channeling this into something positive as opposed to just being focused on, oh, everybody's talking about me is how I'm trying to focus on it right now. And I think, you know, a lot of people in this business, um, you know, they're used to kind of a lot of attention on them. I, I started out as a print reporter, so it's just not my natural state of being, <laughs> yes. but, you know, you just have to get used to that. Let's talk about that. You are a very, <laughs> you're incredibly calm person. Uh, I mean, you're collected, uh, which is one thing that people notice. Let, let's just talk a little bit about how you came to be that way. And I guess you came by it kind of naturally. Uh, t- talk to me about your parents and, and their very interesting story. <laughs> well, my parents are um, from Trinidad and Tobago, a small island in the Caribbean. Uh, very close to Venezuela, actually, so um, kind of pretty far south in the Caribbean. But my parents, uh, they, when, before I was born, my parents came to the United States uh, so that my dad could go to school. He was studying at Howard University, and I was born here. And um, shortly after I was born, we moved back to Trinidad and Tobago, and I lived there for eight years or so. And um, so a lot of my life was spent, a lot of my early, early life was spent not in the United States. And then when I was in elementary school, we moved back. Uh, you know, I think that my parents are both. Wait, wait, let me just stop you for a second. Yeah. What, what kind of perspective does that give you? Uh, I mean, having spent those years as a child somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, I, gr- growing up, my siblings and I, those of us who were, most of us were born here in the U.S. How many we, you guys, do you have? There, I have five siblings, so there's six of us total. Oh, my. Um, five out of six of us were born in the U.S. And um, when we were younger, we grew up back in Trinidad, um, you know, fully immersed in that culture, but always knowing that we had been born somewhere else. And we had kind of a fascination with coming back to America. Uh, I think growing up, I've, I've always just been fascinated with this country. I've always loved this country. And I think that a lot of those things kind of, um, it always led me to kind of be drawn to history and be drawn to government. And, you know, I just always um, loved learning about about the place that I was born. And it started kind of, uh, it started out kind of like a childhood fascination because we always knew that we had been born somewhere else, but we're living in a different country and kind of always had this dual sense of identity that was kind of great. I mean, in retrospect, growing up, Uh, but it also, I mean, any kind of multicultural family, you learn how to, um, First of all, I mean, my parents are Trinidadian. My entire extended family is. And so we grew up with both cultures always at the same time. And in the way that, like, a lot of Black Americans uh, code switch, uh, w- you know, between kind of how they are 
uh, in Black culture and how they are with the rest of the world, there's like more switching that happens when you're part of a multicultural family because some of the, the things that I do and understand culturally from my parents and then the things that I understand as being a Black person in America and then the things that I understand as working in uh, the rest of the world and living in the rest of the world, those are all kind of like realities that I live in at all times. So I think it actually kind of made me much more able to adjust to um, to kind of just internalize differences because I lived through those differences. I mean, some of that also has to do with the fact that I have five siblings. And if you come from a big family, you understand that um, everybody is really different and it teaches you very early on how to deal with differences, how to be patient and how to find your quiet space because <laughs> there was not very much of that growing up. She says that she's sitting in a uh, <laughs> uh, in a nearly abandoned building at <laughs> CNN there. So, yeah. <laughs> Ted, so I interrupted you when I, I asked you about your parents, uh, because their story, as I read it, is is kind of your classic immigrant story. And it feels like they instilled in you the thing that immigrants often do in their kids, which is a real sense of uh, striving, of discipline. Uh, but But yeah. talk to me about them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean... Growing up, like, my parents were big on reading. Like, we always had books. They had, like, a full complement of, like, Encyclopedia Britannica in our house at all times. We had the adult version and the kid version. Um, you know, when I, when we were younger, my dad, like, if we had questions about something, my dad, the first thing he would always say is, go look it up. <laughs> like, go look it up in the encyclopedia. And um, so my, my parents were... This was both, before Google. This was before, oh, this was before Google, for <laughs> sure. Um, and, you know, growing up as immigrants, we, you know, we didn't have a whole lot growing up. So we kind of got the internet later than everybody else. And, um, you know, they were just, they just worked really hard. Um, they worked really hard under very difficult circumstances. It's not easy to be an immigrant in this country um, especially coming here with absolutely no family and, you know, very little money to speak of. And they raised us um, as as if I think we were always raised to kind of um, not be mediocre <laughs> in a lot, frankly. I mean, um, we always had to get good grades. Um, you know, they were just very kind of focused on making sure that we uh, we're doing our best. And some of that is their immigrant story. And I think some of that is honestly the way that they grew up mm -hmm. in Trinidad as well, because I think they were like this even before they were immigrants. So, um, you know, both of my parents were, are, are pretty well educated. Uh, they both are college educated. My dad has a, um, a PhD and my mom now has, um, a, uh, um, my mom, is uh, now has a, um, a, a MBA, which she got kind of later on after we, most of us had already left the house. So I think they've always really believed in education and kind of instilled that in all of us mm -hmm. growing up. But mostly, I think part of the other thing that they instilled in us as immigrants was, you know, they knew that we were not like our peers and they kind of forced us to be okay with that to be okay with being a little bit different, to not kind of go with the flow or go with the crowd. 
And I kind of growing up a little bit resented that because there were a lot of things that I felt like we couldn't do when we were younger. But I think in retrospect, it gave me a sense of independence, a sense of in, of independent thinking that I think actually is a huge asset as a reporter today. Just not, not feeling like I need to be a part of a club, but just um, evaluating things on my own and doing things based on my best judgment. And I think that has really served me well, even if growing up, um, there were a lot of things I wanted to do that I wasn't allowed to do. (laughs) I want to come back to your storyline in a second, but I wanted to ask you about this. uh, You say uh, being an immigrant isn't easy. Um, And it strikes me, um, you're covering a lot of these stories um, you know, the immigration has been such a huge part of the story of the last four years, the political story, um, the the whole social justice movement, you're a black woman, uh, social justice mo- movement and so on. How do your personal experiences help inform your ability to uh, write these stories and, and uh, do are they a hindrance in any way because you you have strong feelings of your own from your own experience? I think that um, my personal experiences help me understand these stories in a very different but important way. I mean, it's not a lot of things like you were saying about race in America, about um, about even about immigration, which is actually not something that I have talked a lot about on a personal level prior to, I think, these last few weeks. But, I mean, when you um, are part of a family in which immigration is part of your family story, it is very personal, but it's also not theoretical. I think for a lot of Americans and even a lot of journalists who cover these stories, it's very theoretical what we're talking about. And I understand how long it takes to get through the line. I understand how difficult it can be to be on a student visa, which my, you know, my dad was at one point, um, and what limitations you have when you're here under certain kinds of visas. Um, You know, I, my parents became citizens this year. And um, after decades living in this country, and um, I will tell you that like understanding uh, the feeling of uncertainty about, you know, their future. We had never really experienced that. I think under in in past years, I think they just sort of went about their lives as, as immigrants, you know, within the rules, like doing whatever they needed to do, but never really thinking about the government sort of penalizing them for their immigrant status. And I think that in recent years, uh, that's been something that we've thought about for the first time. And um, and I think my parents sort of have always wanted to become citizens, but never felt like it was something that was um, so desperately urgent. Uh, but when they did become citizens this year, it was a bit of a relief because there was some certainty about that, uh, that I think was uh, just based on wanting our family to remain as whole as possible and not having anything kind of pop up uh, that... Um, that was unexpected. So some of these storylines, I think, yes, they are personal. I don't, I don't cover them from a personal 
perspective, but I think it gives me a sense of understanding of what people are experiencing day to day and the fact that um, that most immigrants who come to this country are, they are coming actually to work and they're coming to, uh, to raise their families and they're paying taxes and um, their immigration status is not something that they want to be front of mind, but um, there are ways that the government can make it more front of mind for them. And, um, and I think there are, obviously there are a lot of um, immigrants in this country who are even more at risk and at peril of, of true um, separation. And I don't think you have to be a child of immigrants to understand that story. But I think what you, what it is helpful to understand is just, uh, I think people very easily, they, they kind of say, oh, well, just follow the rules, get in line. I think people don't understand the complexity of the immigration system, how difficult it is, how expensive it is, and how time consuming it is. And all of those factors are things that I lived through. Um, and it, it does affect, I think, did the you way go that to I the, understand how this works. Did you go to the natural their naturalization ceremony? I did not. Unfortunately, because of COVID, they... Um, there no, were no visitors allowed. Oh, that's too bad. And, and actually, it was so, it was crazy because it happened so fast. Like, one day, they were doing their interviews, and literally, because they, they've been trying to compress the process. Mm-hmm. So, we kind of just, my mom just sort of, like, texted the family group chat, and she was like, here it is. And we oh, were like, oh, my wow. God, you know. Um, but it, it was it was a great I mean, it was a great moment for both of my parents just because it's just been such a long time coming. And, you know, I mean, I think we all wanted to celebrate, but we've just been super careful because of COVID yeah. not to, you know, do anything. We, um, uh, you, you not only um, Zoom together, but uh, apparently you spent some time singing and playing musical instruments together as well. Is that right? You come I, I, you you have music yeah. in your background. Yes, very much so. I mean, both of my parents are extremely musical. And in fact, they they sort of met that way um, through like a local band in the small town that they were playing in, living in, um, that they grew up in, in Sanger Grande in Trinidad. So they kind of met that way. My mom is a singer and my dad plays the guitar, but he was also a music teacher uh, for years in Trinidad. And so growing up, you know, we all had to learn how to play instruments I played the violin. I also sang in college. I sang in um, the Harvard University Choir and the Radcliffe Choral Society. And um, my sis- my siblings, they all kind of do various things. Several of them play the piano. We all sing. Um, even my little, my brothers have kind of gotten into like rap and hip hop recently. So that's kind of like a new generation of things. But yeah, music is a big part of how we grew up. Did you ever think about... Uh- doing it as a as a vocation as a oh i wished i i think that i knew i was never like that good you know <laughs> i was good enough to do it recreationally and to sort of it's my stress relief honestly it's like how i relax and how i kind of survived college and i needed to have something that was totally different that put me in a different zone but i don't think i ever really thought that I had what it took to do it professionally. But yeah, I mean, honestly, if I were good enough, that would be my dream. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. 
And now, back to the show. You went to Harvard, or we refer to it uh, as the University of Chicago of the East. Uh, but um and you you your original thought was to become a doctor uh and why did you this this was like a big life decision for you you went there with that intention and then you decided against why so i mean first of all i think i wanted to be i wanted to be a doctor for a couple of reasons one of them was actually it has to do with growing up in trinidad and um, my grandparents, most of them, except for one, uh, died very relatively young, what we would consider to be young today. And um, uh, my grandfather on my mother's side had an enlarged heart and died in his 70s at a, I mean, I would say relatively prematurely, but it just always to me as I grew up, I realized that probably didn't need to have happened. You know, it felt like, um, that like they passed away from very preventative things. And it kind of emphasized to me the importance and the value of modern medicine and kind of science in general. So I've always been drawn to that. I mean, I think also I felt kind of like I wanted to be a successful person. And I, at the time, there were not that many things that I knew that successful people did. And like one of them was being a doctor and the other was being a lawyer. Yeah. And um, I wasn't sure. I didn't really, honestly, I didn't really think I wanted to be a lawyer. So um, I was like, I'm just going to be a doctor. And I wanted to be a, a, a cardiovascular surgeon. And um, I got to Harvard and I actually really enjoy the sciences, honestly, a lot. And, um, but I just, I realized that I, it was the process was making me incredibly unhappy. There was like not enough about it that I think was keeping me engaged. Um, I would go to labs and I would just, I just felt like I can't be in this windowless room <laughs> for four years. Yeah. And just knowing what I would need to go through, not just four years of college, but also medical school and residency. I just, at some point I had to have like a kind of come to Jesus moment and say like, is this really what you want to do? Can you really see yourself going through this process for all of these years? Because this is not something that you can do and just be kind of like halfway about it. So, um, so the answer you know, was no, half, huh? the answer was no, it was clearly <laughs> no. And um, halfway through, I was like, okay, well, you better get some new skills. And so I was like, I need to learn how to write better. So I decided to, work on the school newspaper and mostly just because I was like, this is a place where I can write a lot and get better at it. And that's all it started out as honestly um, was just kind of like, I need to learn how to be a better writer and get, get more, you know, get, uh, get uh, some marketable skills that I can use. <laughs> and How, uh, how, how did they be, else. I want to talk about this obviously, but how did the, uh, how did the news that you uh, were not going to pursue a career in medicine uh, land back home? I mean, if I remember correctly, I think my parents were sort of, they, I, I think they, they were generally supportive, but they were kind of like concerned that I hadn't figured out what it was I actually was going to do. So, you know, I think they were just kind of like, I, and my mom was always kind of like, well, then be a lawyer, you know? <laughs> um, and so, 
I'm a I'm the son of an immigrant as well. These, these are these these are familiar stories to me. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I mean I I don't think that they were um, upset or anything like that, but I do think that they wanted to kind of know where I was headed. And I didn't know at that point where I was headed. And that was honestly a very scary time in my life. It's very disconcerting. And especially being at Harvard. And, you know, I I went to all public schools my whole life. And I got to Harvard and there were all these kids who were like so much smarter than me and so much more prepared for the college experience than I was. And I already felt behind And then to, on top of that, kind of be in this gray space where I didn't know what I was doing, it made me feel sick. Like, I was just like, what am I doing with my life? And I'm going to fail. I I don't have what it takes to succeed because I've already dropped out of the one thing that I started. It was just, um, there were a lot of things about it that on a personal level, even without my parents, just, I felt like my personality was not very well suited to making that kind of dramatic decision at such an important time. But um, I felt pretty strongly, I mean, some of it was just checking in with my mental health and just being like, okay, you're really unhappy and you need to make some changes to figure out what does make you feel fulfilled and what does make you feel like you want to get up and go and do things. So that gets back to journalism here. Uh, the Harvard Crimson, and you guys took a field trip that I guess was pretty meaningful to you in 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 making the decision that this is what I want to do. Yeah, I mean, I I think this is probably one of the most meaningful things that happened to me in college, and um, I talk about it a lot because it really is like the origin story of how I knew that I wanted to do journalism specifically. And it was called a civil rights and service trip. And it was organized through the Phillips Brooks House Association, which is a student-led public service organization at Harvard. It's very old, um, has a really great history. And one of this is one of the trips that they put on for spring break. So instead of a typical spring break where you go to Cancun or whatever, we went to Mississippi. And um, so on this trip, it, we retraced all of these big moments in the civil rights movement and actually started in Memphis, Tennessee, and mm-hmm. at, you know, at the Lorraine Motel. And um, we kind of start there and then we go further south. We went to Oxford, Mississippi. We went to mm-hmm. Jackson. We went to Sunflower County, Mississippi. And in all of those places, just retracing the big moments of um of the civil rights movement, the integration of old old Miss, um, the assassination of um, of Medgar Evers, the the murder of Emmett Till, um, and then uh, the the tour kind of ends in Sunflower County, Mississippi, which is a re- really rural part of the state. Um, that you know, my in my recollection, I think the thing that I remember the most about that place was just noticing how deeply segregated it still was um, after all these years. And I think it really shocked me in a lot of ways just to feel like after all these decades after the civil rights movement, there were still parts of this country that were effectively still very much segregated where black people really never interacted with white people and vice versa. Um, And we were visiting with, um, a sort of nonprofit down there that did education and 
um, other, you know, service with, with kids and local people who lived in that part of the, the state. But I mean, the, the process, it was, I, what was so meaningful to me was, it was about um, what I think is really at the core of journalism, which is about being in a place where things had happened um, or where things are happening and kind of seeing for yourself in a really visceral way what life is like for people. And a lot of the stories of the civil rights movement, particularly in Mississippi, but all across the South, were also about journalists who went to those places, saw things and wrote about them and brought them back to the rest of the country and really completely changed the trajectory of the civil rights movement by highlighting the injustices that were going on. And it just made me realize that that's what I wanted to do. That's what I wanted to be a part of. And I, um, the second time I went on the trip, I wrote um, a kind of, but this was before live blogs, honestly, but I wrote like basically almost like journal entries or live blogs that were published on the Harvard um, University. It's not like the university school newspaper, but it's like the university kind of um, newsletter type thing. And they published them and they were sort of um, entries from our travels and just the process of kind of writing about it um, almost in a journalistic fashion. It really cemented to me that I enjoyed doing it. I, um, I felt like that was a kind of legacy, that the legacy of journalism in that movement was something I wanted to be associated with. And I think it's always been the sense that, especially going down there and talking to people who lived in Mississippi, who normally don't ever talk to people who live outside of the state, it made me realize that there are so many people in this country who need reporters to take their stories and bring it to the rest of the world because they don't have the power to do that themselves. And that's why, I mean, that's why I got into this business. But you also obviously had an interest in politics, which is related yeah. to how you change circumstances. But you, uh, I know you were involved, I guess, with the Institute of Politics at, at, at Harvard. Um, and, and you, um, you, and you left Harvard and you ended up at Politico, uh, right away. How, how did that come about? I mean, what's striking about your, a lot of people have these careers where they're at the, uh, you know, Podunk Daily Express yeah. and, uh, you know, they move on to the, you know, West Bumfuck Gazette and so <laughs> on. Uh, and you, you and didn't, you, 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 you didn't do that. No. And honestly, I thought I would, I, I thought that that's where, how I would end up doing this. Um, when, so in college, I kind of came to this whole journalism thing late. Most of my peers were already going for their big inner, you know, um, their, their big internships at the major papers, whether it was the Boston Globe or the Miami Herald or the Washington Post or whatever. I got into it late. So I was kind of behind the eight ball. I did one internship at our local TV station in DC. It was an unpaid internship at WJLA where I basically um, was working with the very, very small, like two person investigative team uh, doing kind of local investigative stories or just really helping out with that. And that was my first journalism internship. After that, um, Politico, which had just kind of started out, they had partnered with the Institute of Politics 
to do their very first true internship program. And so I applied for that internship and I got it. And that's how I ended up at Politico uh, because, um, I mean, honestly, if I had not gotten that internship, I'm not sure I would have gotten any internship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, I'd been rejected for other internships that summer at newspapers. I mean, I'd been rejected. So it wasn't like I was getting offers from everywhere. Um, but I got this inter- internship at Politico. And I, I mean, Politico had just started, I think, taking people back to like those first years of Politico, where it was like such a new thing. And, and if you were a political junkie, which I kind of was at the time and probably still still am, I was obsessed with it. I woke up every morning and I read Playbook and I like devoured everything in in that on that website. And so it was my dream. It was my dream internship at the time. Your progress is pretty remarkable because you spent two years there. Then you ended up at ABC uh, as a producer and you you worked uh, with uh, mostly with, I guess, the George Stephanopoulos and his his show. What what caused you to make that move? And did you say at that point, because I know you went you've been toggling back and forth between print and and uh, broadcast. Did you have a sense of what you wanted to do? Which of those you wanted to do? No, I really didn't. Honestly, at that moment, I didn't know what I wanted to do at all. I felt like I'd really hit a ceiling at Politico. I um, I had actually been hired with it in an amazing job. I was covering the White House, actually, as soon as I graduated. Yeah, that's and that's was, extraordinary. Was, yeah, but it was like, I mean, you know, this was, as you remember, I mean, this this was in the, the um, Obama years. So this was 2010, so two years after he came into office. And the the kind of media ecosystem had th- was throwing everything at covering this White House. So we had this, like, 24-hour blog, like, it was very kind of like fast and furious and there it required a lot of manpower. So at the time, I mean, this was before Trump, but at the time it was a pretty big White House team and I was assigned to it. And it was a great experience for the most part, but it felt pretty overwhelming. I felt like I needed, um, I had needed kind of a more foundational kind of nuts and bolts journalistic experience and I hadn't gotten it because I kind of was thrown into the deep end of the pool pretty early on. Um, I probably, you know, I don't know if I needed it, but I felt like I needed it. I remember John Harris, when he hired me. Editor of Politico, yeah. Yeah, John Harris, the editor of Politico, when he hired me, I I was sort of saying to him, I was like, you know, I think I need to um, do another internship over the summer at the Boston Globe before I come work full time. And he was like, he was like, no, you don't. We'll, we'll teach you here. (laughs) And and, I mean, whether that was true or not, that's what happened. And, um, but then, you know, I, I, um, after two years there, I felt like I didn't know what else I wanted to do there. I also felt like I was kind of limited in my skills, which is something that's kind of a recurring theme in my life. But, um, I decided that I wanted to go and kind of learn some multi-platform skills. So like learning how to use a camera, learning more about other elements of the journalism world, like producing video and understanding how to even do that kind of 
um, that kind of work, it wasn't about being on camera and I wasn't on camera at all. The role that I was playing was not doing that at all. Um, it was really more just about, okay, I need to learn how to do some other things so that if at some point in the future I decide that I want to um, go into the television world, I have marketable skills to do that. And um, I took a chance and I, um, the position was in New York and when I accepted it, I had two weeks to move and I literally just like picked up my stuff and sold everything and moved to New York. And, um, it was, I, I, I don't know what else to say about it other than it was just like, I knew that I, I, I felt like I needed to take a risk. I felt like I needed to do something that was completely different and just see how it went and, and then kind of decide on where I really wanted to be in the journalism world after that. And you came back in two years to the Washington Post I as did. a uh, yeah. national uh, political writer and a general. That that's that's a heady leap. Yeah, it was. Um, that was another decision that I mean, it seems. I think now it seems like a very obvious move. Of course, you would go work at the Washington Post, but at the time, this was shortly after the paper had been sold to Jeff Bezos. There was a an enormous amount of uncertainty about about what was going on there, about whether the paper would even survive, really. Yeah. And I think that I was really nervous. I didn't want to go to a job where I would be laid off, you know, because it was just financially not um, stable. I mean, I think I'm, I'm very much like a, I'm a, I'm a recession baby in a lot of ways. Like a lot of my formative career was, you know, but like early on in my life, like 2008 to 2014, just like in the middle of the recession. So I think like I'm very much like the risk averse in terms of jobs and wanting to make sure I go to places where I don't put myself at, at, at increased risk. So I was very concerned about that. Um, but they, they came to me and they said, you know, we are, want to start a general assignment news desk and we want you to help us start start it. And it was totally out of left field because I had been covering politics at ABC. I wasn't really doing, um, I wasn't really doing kind of like general news, but it seemed like a good opportunity for me to go back into a newsroom where I could be edited, where I could be mentored and where I could be able to tell different kinds of stories. And so I said, you know what, let me, I'll do it. You know, I, I think the most important thing in that juncture, honestly, was just um, wanting to kind of buck up on my writing even more and be really kind of in a strong newsroom environment. And no matter what had happened at the Post there over the years with, you know, downsizing mm -hmm. and being purchased by Jeff Bezos or whatever, the, the Post has always had a strong newsroom. Yeah. And I wanted to be there. And so I think it was, I mean, in retrospect, it was a great decision. I think it worked out extremely well for me, but I think I got exactly what I wanted out of that experience, which was just being inocu inoculated in this world-class newsroom where, believe it or not, everybody was so helpful. It is such a collegial, it is the most, even by far, the most collegial newsroom I've ever worked in. And I was very surprised by that because I thought it would be a lot more competitive just given the pedigree of the Washington Post, but it, it was, I mean, yeah. I grew up in the newsroom of the Chicago Tribune, literally started working there the day after college and um, was formative for the rest of my life. I learned so much there. One of the stories you covered was the uh, 
tragic uh, massacre at the Mother Emanuel Church in uh, in Charleston. Uh, tell me about that. And you know, this this probably took you back to that initial tour down in uh, in uh, in the day. But uh, what a stirring story! Yeah, I I think um, it to this day I think it's one of the hardest stories that I've ever had to cover. I mean, I think it's just, obviously it was such an incredible tragedy, but I think that one of the things about going to the South is, and, and honestly, and talking to black people who live in the South is that there is such capacity for complexity in, um, in people who live in places like Charleston and the surrounding area because their lives are, um, you know, I mean, a lot of the people, those families have long histories in the South. They, um, you know, are descendants of slaves, like many of us are. Um, and they grow up in uh, an environment that is um, both where they call home, but also like somewhat hostile to them. And I think that when the rest of the world kind of like swooped into Charleston to cover that story, it, they were like really shocked by the capacity of those people to um, to kind of get closure so quickly after this thing had happened. And in some cases to forgive, um, and there was some controversy about whether that forgiveness was warranted or not, but I think it's because, um, I think that the, there's a culture of like black Southerners of like enduring really awful things. And, um, and finding kind of the lesson in it and the way forward after it. And I think that was one of those moments where it just really highlighted the capacity of Black people in this country to endure really um, incredible, um, incredibly awful things and um, incredible prejudice and persevere through it. And also then turn around and change their state. So bringing the flag down, um, which I covered at the time, and the, the Confederate flag from the, the South Carolina State Capitol grounds. So um, one of the hardest things in that story was also just like talking to these families and like, you know, personally just feeling that pain and understanding that, or feeling like I would not want to talk to a reporter after something so tragic had happened to me. Um, but so many people did, and it was really incredible to kind of see that grace and to experience that grace and, um, and just to be a part of kind of telling the story of the aftermath and really lifting up the voices of the people, um, from Mother Emanuel Church and that community was, I think, really an honor of mine as a, from a career perspective. Um, but what, what about what about as a, a a woman of color? What about as a black woman? Yeah, I um, mean, I think I, I think that as a as a black woman, I mean, these stories are so personal, and um, you know, I mean, there were definitely days being there where I was like sitting in my car just crying because you can't really think about what happened in that church without getting really emotional because it's a really awful thing that happened. 
And these were people's aunts and uncles and grandmothers. And, um, you know, it's, it's a, it was a tragedy. And it was, and you, um, I think it was a tragedy for the entire country, but when you sort of see yourself and your family in those people, it's, um, it definitely cuts a lot deeper. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You got hired um, by CNN in 2017 as a White House correspondent um, at a really sort of uh, peculiar moment, not peculiar, but unexpected moment in history when Trump uh, became president. And um, you, I'm sure not by choice, but by by dint of doing your duty, ended up getting in his crosshairs at one point. Uh, talk about that, because I remember watching it, and I was so, I was personally outraged by it um but just to, just describe the scene a little and how you processed it yeah so i mean it was one of those days where i mean honestly actually it was one of those weeks where you could tell he was in a pretty agitated state he'd actually lashed out at a couple of people that same week yamish alcindor pbs and april ryan who he has had several interactions with and two two black actually, women two black women um uh, but he'd also lashed out at my colleague Jim Acosta at a press conference. It was sort of like he was in a, one of those moods. And I, I think when you cover this president, you know when he's in an agitated state. And um, he was. He was heading actually to Europe for an official trip. And this is when he was leaving to go on to Marine One. And we were in a gaggle. Um, and there was also a lot of activity happening. He had just fired Jeff Sessions. It was post-election and Republicans had lost a bunch of seats. And so, but he'd appointed Mark Whitaker or Matt Whitaker, I'm sorry, Mark, Matt Whitaker, um, a um, uh, basically a, an, an acolyte supporter to run the Justice Department. And we were all just trying to get him to answer a pretty straightforward question, which is what do you want Whitaker to do uh, when it comes to the Mueller investigation. But the, the thing about it, especially compared to covering like a President Obama, for example, which I've also done, and I've also done these gaggles with President Obama. Um, the thing about President Trump is that he actually answers the question a lot of the time. So the more direct the question, the better chances you are you have of getting an answer. So I just was tr trying to think about the most direct, clear way of asking him, do you want Whitaker to rein in the Mueller investigation. That was the question of the day. And so I asked literally that question. And um, I actually was a little surprised because um, he, I've talked, I've asked him questions several, many times in that context, but you're never really sure if he really internalizes who you are, to be honest. I knew that he knew I worked at CNN and he had been avoiding answering my questions that in that gaggle. He finally came to me and when I asked him the question, that's when he lashed out. And I thought to myself, well, that's an interesting reaction. <laughs> you know, I was like, well, you know, I because he will answer the question most of the time. So if he chooses not to, it just struck me as 
something that clearly touched a nerve with him. I felt like it had a lot more to do with, um, he was, I think he was agitated by the directness of the question. And it made me feel like, yeah, that's, that was the right question. And the, his reaction tells us a lot about what was going on. At the, in the moment, I didn't really. We should I, point I out what his reaction was. He said, what a stupid question that is. What a stupid question. And he said, I watch you a lot, which does belie the fact that he doesn't watch CNN. Right. Uh, and he says, you ask a lot of stupid questions. And I, I, I was just, I was a little surprised by the reaction, but I didn't take it personally. It's a weird distinction. But I just, it just, I did not think of it as like a personal insult because I just don't, you know, I've, I've told people this, but like, I don't get my self-esteem from President Trump, you know, like, I don't need him to tell me that I'm smart. So the, him saying that I'm, I ask stupid questions doesn't really make a difference whatsoever. But I did note that I felt like he was really triggered by that question. And um, it made me think that that was something that really needed to continue to be pressed. It wasn't until afterwards when it was being played back and I had to, I was doing a live shot on the North Lawn and, you know, I was on with Poppy Har Harlow and Jim Shuto and they asked me about it. And, um, and I kind of had to react to it. And I just, I, I said probably what I just told you. Um, I, what was surprising was just the way that most other people saw it. I think a lot of other people were incredibly offended by it. And, um, you know, I got a text from a close friend who's another black woman who I went to Harvard with. And she was like, I am so angry and so upset because I cannot believe that someone would diminish you in that way. And I think it's because as a journalist, in those moments, I kind of, my personal feelings don't really kind of enter into the picture, that it didn't really, it didn't really hit me in that way. I didn't really have a reaction to that part of it. But I do recognize that for a lot of people who saw that moment, especially for Black women who saw that moment, it was a deeply, deeply offensive thing because of the way that it kind of fed into these um, kind of stereotypical ways in which like black women are publicly diminished and viewed and not just black women, but women of color are, are kind of treated as less than or treated as not smart enough or um, what have you. And I think it's those things that really kind of made that moment stand out for a lot of people, even if I personally was just a lot more dismissive of, of it. And he does have kind of a proclivity to do that. I mean, yeah. as you pointed out, he went after two of your colleagues, both uh, black women in that uh, in that period. You know, uh, it it just prompts me to ask you, um, you said earlier, uh, sort of, uh, you talked a little bit at the beginning about yourself as t turning the moment into something other than about yourself this moment of, uh, of uh, celebrity for you. Um, and one of them must be just you as a role model. I mean, uh, there are a lot of young women out there, young black women out there who 
now know who you are, see you, see you in the role that you play, see you go toe-to-toe with the President of the United States. Um, think of, you don't have to think back very far to think of yourself as a, a young woman like them. You're still a young woman. But um, that must that must be meaningful. Yeah, it really is. I mean, you're you're totally right about it. What's weird about this is that I still, <laughs> I'm not that young, but I don't, I don't feel that far removed from my 21 year old self, just starting out and wondering what kind of path there is for someone like me, and seeing very few other examples of Black women who are covering politics. I think that's the key thing is like, I have always loved politics. I've, I like a lot of, you know, I, 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 am, I love all of journalism, but I really love politics. And I think politics sometimes have felt so inaccessible to women, but also inaccessible to black women. And, um, and, you know, early in my career, I felt often that there were, certain sources that I could never develop because, you know, they, they, they don't feel comfortable with me, not the other way around. And I think that there were people like Gwen Eiffel who were always like the gold standard for people who really succeeded in this business as themselves. But there were not all that many others in the political space, I think, in particular. And I always wanted more of that. And I think one of the things that has kept me going in this business is knowing that if I give up too soon, there won't be a me for the younger, young women who are coming up in this business. And I didn't know that it would turn out like, you know, I didn't know that ultimately I would be successful at all. You know, I was never really sure, but I... I just kind of figured, you know, if you give up now, there won't be someone for, you know, there, you know, if everybody like me gave up, there won't be someone for the people who are coming behind us. So I stuck with it in large part because of that. And I think now, you know, whatever this moment is for me, obviously, I don't want my, um, you know, my physical appearance on television to be the most important thing about what people take away from me when I am, when I appear on TV. But I do recognize that when people see me, um, they see themselves and they feel represented. They feel like they are in the room. And that has to be followed up by actual sort of representation of their viewpoints as well, which is what I strive to do. But it's so, it's so important, not just for the kids who just want to like, see themselves reflected on TV, but especially for younger journalists who um, have the ambition of covering national politics and covering a president and covering, you know, um, a a debate and a convention to know that there is room for them in this business. That's the big difference between being at like a Washington Post and being at CNN is that there's this extra layer of showing people that there's space for them in this part of the industry that is not very friendly to people like me often. Um, And I think that that is really important 
but it's also just, it's also important for me too, because I'm still kind of like a little bit of that 21 year old, like deep down in my heart. <laughs> so we, get a, we can, I think we should note that you just had a birthday. Yes. And so you're, we, can we say how old you are? 32. Yes. So yes. young, very young. Um, I, I just want to ask you about this. We, we talked about your moment. What about this moment for the country? You, you, your whole consciousness as a political journalist spans from the beginning of the Obama administration to now the end of the Trump administration and has, has been beaten to death. Two very, very, you know, could not be more different moments uh, in the country. What, what in your own mind, how do you sum up what you've experienced over the last 12 years and what have you learned about the politics of our country? Yeah, it's, that's such a good question. I, you know, it's been a, I think it's been a roller coaster for the country just as it has been professionally for a lot of journalists going from this moment that seemed incredibly hopeful about the progress that America can make in terms of electing its first black president to feeling like all of that is so incredibly precarious. But I think that um, in terms of, uh, you know, so-called racial progress is incredibly precarious. But I think that actually where we are right now is the best um, kind of state of mind for the country to be in, in terms of understanding the true nature of the United States of America, which is not always inexorable progress, but sometimes backsliding and moving forward and backsliding a little bit and moving forward. And I think that that is actually in some ways truer to who we all have been as a country. And I think that covering this, there have been two kinds of things. There's one part of it that is about kind of um, seeing the country for what it is, uh, recognizing uh, where there is uh, hatred and prejudice and sort of all of the sort of dark elements of the country, like recognizing what those things are and understanding how our institutions protect us from uh, kind of the worst parts of um, kind of human nature and, and how our institutions sometimes don't protect us from those things. I think it's been an education for all of us in that. Uh, this, this, these last four years have really tested our institutions more than anything else. And as journalists, we kind of like overly rely on institutions to understand how the world works. Uh, but I think Trump has taught us that um, they're not everything. They don't protect us from everything and they're not foolproof. They can be broken. Well, and, and they so, also they also rely on the good will of the people who hold they them. Rely on, and if if, yes. if if the people who hold them don't believe in them, don't believe in norms and rules and laws and the institutions yes. themselves, they can unravel pretty quickly. Exactly. I think that has been really clear. And it's important for us to really, as an industry, but also as a country, understand that. The other category of things I think that has changed, and in some cases this is also for the better, is our relationship to people in power and the truth and understanding that um, not giving people the benefit of the doubt is okay. And, um, and in fact, it is better that we should have much more skepticism in, in political journalism when it comes to people in power. 
I also think that a part of that in the Trump era, you know, we've gotten so addicted as journalists to, um, you know, unnamed sources and kind of people who are um, on background and deep background and all of that stuff. And that those are valuable tools as reporters. But I think sometimes there's also common sense and then there's truth, right? And so I think that on a personal level, I have um, tried to take a step back from that kind of reporting um, in a lot of ways, because when you're dealing with sort of unreliable narrators, which a lot of people in this administration are, you can't always rely on what people tell you on background because they might be misleading you, and often they are. And you have to also put that up against what is actually happening, what is the truth, what we see with our own eyes and ears. And I think that as reporters coming out of this Trump era, I don't think we've learned this lesson now yet, but I hope that we do, that we also have more skepticism about um, the kind of reporting that comes almost exclusively from, from unnamed sources and just wanting to make sure that even though we convey the viewpoints of the people that we cover, whether um, that's fine to do, but it also needs to be, um, you know, it needs to be matched up against the actual truth so that we're not um, only conveying things that are like from fantasy land over here. Just uh, if we could return to a point where we agree that there is truth and there are facts would be important. And that's a frightening thing for democracy and for journalism. And that uh, has really blossomed under Trump, the the notion of relative uh, truth. Big challenge for democracy. But whatever happens, Abby Phillip, I know that you will be there uh, giving uh, trenchant analysis and uh, and and uh, great reporting. And uh, I've told you this before. I'm proud to be a colleague of yours at CNN, and I'm a great consumer of your good work. So well, thanks. And um, thank- and can I just say before you go, um, you probably don't remember this, but when I was in college, we sat on a Harvard IOP stage together. Years ago, you, you probably don't remember this, but it, I think it was my senior year, and I, um, you were there for some reason, and I was one of the people interviewing you, and that was also, you know, speaking of moments in college that kind of reaffirm, you know, w- what I wanted to do. That was a big moment, and I, I'll never forget that because then later on, just kind of becoming your colleague is a really weird um, but amazing fun way in which the world kind of comes full circle for you. So. Well, thank if I If I even played a tiny, minute role in advancing your career, that will have been a real, that's a real source of pride for me. So thank you for saying that. I, I wondered whether we had encountered each other when you were there, because I, I serve on the board of the Harvard IOP, but I joined it after I left the administration, yeah. um, I think. But in any case, um, that that's an, it's nice to hear, and it's always good to always good to be with you. Thanks, Abby. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, 
visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.